0: Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation.
1: Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Schaes.
0: And I'm your host, Monty Bottons. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Stephanie Seneff, a senior research scientist at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. On this podcast, Moni and Dr. Senef discuss her research and work in understanding the role of toxic chemicals and micronutrient deficiencies in health and disease. Moni, tell us a little bit more about this conversation.
0: Thank you, Kim. Today, you're going to really enjoy listening to Dr. Stephanie Seneff. She's an amazing critical thinker that is way ahead of her time, and she comes from outside the agricultural community and outside of the medical community, and it has given her an opportunity to see things from a totally different perspective, and I think that's important, to be listening to people who can see things that maybe we can't see when we're right in the middle of things. She's going to challenge your paradigm. I guarantee it, and that's Okay. Be ready to be challenged. Be open to new ideas. I want you to listen, learn, and ask yourself, what if? What if some of these things that she's studied and discovered are correct? And if they are true, then what do you need to do as a result of it? So please tune in, listen up, and enjoy a conversation here with Dr. Stephanie Sanef Welcome to this episode of the Aggie Merge podcast. I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Stephanie Sineff here today with us. She has a a wealth of information and and practical knowledge that she has uh, assembled over the years and everything that she's done. And I'm just really glad she could join us today and and share her perspectives on that uh, infinite connection between agriculture and human health. Welcome, Stephanie.
2: So great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, for those on the podcast that may not know you, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to tell us your story.
2: Okay, well, so I'm at uh, MIT, born and bred. I went to MIT undergraduate, graduate, PhD, uh, worked for MIT my whole adult life. So I'm very attached to MIT. Uh, Most of my work was in computer science, developing precursors to Amazon Echo and uh, iPhone, Siri iPhone, um, conversational interactions with the computer. Um, but it was around 2007, 2008 timeframe that I got worried about autism. I saw the rates going up and I thought there's gotta be something in the environment that's causing this continual up, you know, increase in autism every year. Uh, people kept saying, we're just diagnosing it more and I didn't believe that. And so um, that took me on a, on a mission of looking through all kinds of toxic chemicals, trying to figure out what it might be. And not until 2012 did I figure out glyphosate. And I really think glyphosate's a major player it's not the only thing that causes autism, but it's a major player in the autism epidemic. And glyphosate is the active ingredient roundup pervasive in the, in the food supply um, because it's so heavily used in agriculture. And uh, this needs to stop, things need to change. We need to go back to certified organic, You know, the old style agriculture where you don't use chemicals is a, an essential change that we need to make in a hurry uh, for the long-term health of our population.
0: Okay, so that's, that's an interesting path that you've been on there. Tell, tell me about that. How did you, how did you uh, make the, the jump from, like you said, voice recognition, interaction with, with uh, uh, computers, so there's hardware components and software components there, to autism? How, where, I'm sure there's a connection there.
2: <laughs> it's hard to see. I mean, it's really just that um, I was lucky that I was being uh, funded by a company in Taiwan. It's a computer company in Taiwan. Um, and they were interested in sort of uh, medicine and disease and, and connected to technology, so there, there was an opportunity for me to kind of shift my focus towards medical applications or, or you know, health applications. So I just, I was actually developing uh, games, language games, to help people learn a second, second language by playing games, in fact, for Americans learning Chinese, and they were funding me for that for many years. And I just, one, one year, I said, okay, guys, I'm, now I'm going to do this. And I proposed, you know, looking at environmental toxicity and looking at disease and looking for correlations between trying to figure out which uh, chemicals in the environment might be causal and various diseases that were clearly going up in a society. And they bought that. They said, that sounds great. So that I just switched over to that and they have continued to fund me to this day. So I'm very, very fortunate in that respect.
0: Yeah, that is amazing. So, so really it led the communication style Led to the, the interest in the autism, but then you're like, well, wait a minute, what, why, why do we have autism in the first place, right? Or what is what is causing these these exponential increases uh, in, in the disease? So kind of interesting, you know. I, I always find that innovation, you know, comes at the edge or at the fringe, or comes from people outside of right. uh, of the uh, of the issue because they they can see it from a different perspective. I uh,
2: think that's so uh, true. Fair. Yeah. yeah, I think for all the diseases, I feel like there's a core uh, component of people who have been in that space for a long, long time, and they've got their own sort of central focus there. But it's not really correct. There's much more going on outside that other people who aren't sort of embedded in that system are able to see a larger picture and pick up on something else that may be very important that these people have all of them collectively have missed because they're all focused on they focus in on the same thing and they copy each other. It's really quite interesting how how research goes that way, so
0: it's you know? almost a, a, a groupthink phenomenon. You mm-hmm. know, when there's a lack of outside uh, information. So, I suppose for for those people who have and spent their entire career in there, uh, you can ruffle some feathers.
2: I think so, absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, yes.
0: <laughs> so uh, there's that that quote to you know, truth passes through three phases, right? First, it's right. uh, hard. Secondly, it's actively. Uh, uh, disputed or, or violently disputed and then a third it's accepted as truth right right right
2: yes that's so true it's you're, so you're, in the, you're in
0: the middle of number two right now aren't you I think so <laughs> <laughs> well we're, we thank you for being there so now just you know for farmers that are listening to this right um, we want to talk to them there's a reason why uh, I'm a farmer myself there's a reason why we started to use glyphosate right right Absolutely. Uh, we, we were told it was safe. Right. So compared to other chemistries out there, uh, it, it's, it's not acutely toxic. Okay. So like uh, I know cotton farmers have told me that if they touch Timic, they can taste it on their tongue almost instantly. Mm. And okay? that, that, that's an insecticide. That's really it's impressive. like instant toxicity, right? Or yes. you want to take a bath in uh, gramoxone <laughs> that has <laughs> bad consequences. But you know, when people started using uh, glyphosate there, there's not really an immediate right. uh, toxicity like that so i think that's part of the safeness. plus we were told it was safer too from the companies that are marketing it right so, but now you know 30 40 years later we're we're learning we're learning some different things aren't we why why is it taken so long to learn that and were we were we sold a bill of goods and, or or lied to or was it just ignorance is bliss
2: yeah, that's excellent questions, and, and I think we were lied to. I think the people that did the research for Monsanto back in the 70s understood there was something fishy going on here. And of course, they were eager to get it past the approval process, and so they kind of hid it under the rug. Um, there's papers that um, Anthony Samso has collaborated with me on a number of papers, and he's managed to get the government to hand over to him a huge number of documents that were in uh, Monsanto documents that were not published, but they were prepared. In the, um, in the studies that went on to try to get glyphosate approved. And Anthony has found very damning evidence in those documents of, of Bonsanto's knowledge that it accumulates you know in the bone marrow, for example. It accumulates in the tissues. They sort of said they claim that it just goes straight through. Most of it leaves you know through the urine, through the feces, but there's a percentage that persists and it persists everywhere in the body and it accumulates. And that's what's really, really damaging because you get more and more exposure as the longer you live, the more exposure you get, the more the accumulation builds up and you start to things start to break. And it's a really, really fascinating chemical. I believe its mechanism of toxicity is totally unique, um, individual, unique to glyphosate, and insidious and cumulative. And that's what's caused us to have a hard time seeing it because when you do short-term studies, you don't necessarily see harm. It takes a long time for the harm to appear. And, uh, and it's hard for you to believe that uh, one chemical could cause so many diseases. You look at all these diseases that are going up dramatically. I started with, with autism, but when we started looking at glyphosate and what else is going up, we were shocked to find uh, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, um, various cancers like pancreatic cancer and thyroid cancer, all these things. And of course, gut problems, right? Inflammation of the gut. Celiac disease, there's a huge list of diseases that are going up dramatically exactly in step of the rise in glyphosate usage. The correlations are stunning. And we have not been able to find another chemical that matches as well as glyphosate does to these alarming increases in these conditions. You look at America, you know, we've got tons of diabetes and obesity. We're seeing obesity in the children something is going on. It's an endocrine disruption that's causing the person to gain weight. It's not that they're just a fat slob that doesn't you know, want to exercise. We, we sort of blame our, ourselves that we're, you know, um, that we're just uh, not, not controlling our appetite or we're not exercising enough, you know. Maybe there's something to that in terms of playing video games instead of running around outside. But I think the really big thing is a metabolic disorder that's caused by glyphosate and probably other chemicals also affect metabolism. But glyphosate, every time a country starts adopting a Western diet, they
1: start getting fat. I've been tracking it around the world. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy from practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug, it's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different, be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm and now
0: back to our show. So let me so the people that would uh, detract from this would say okay, correlation versus causation, right? So absolutely, you can, you can overlay all, all the graphs and I, I've seen the uh, detractors say that, oh, well, it's a, it's just that it happens to be a coincidence of the timing, not necessarily the causing. So what are some things that we can know that this is a causal agent, not just correlated with maybe uh, something else and I'm just going to grab some things out of the thin air. You know, people have related climate change to these kind of things. People right, right. related... Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know, obesity, maybe to some of these things, uh, what, what are or um, water quality? What, how, how, how can we know definitively that there is some correlation evidence there?
2: Well, the thing is to get to the underlying causal effects and to explain the biology. And that's what I do in my book. I have this book, Toxic Legacy, that was published last July mm-hmm. um, by Chelsea Green, yep. how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment. And um, in that book, I explained the toxic mechanism that glyphosate uh, uses to cause uh, problems. And that is to say that it I believe this is true It's still a controversial topic, of course, whether this is true or not. But the evidence is quite strong, even from Monsanto's own studies. And I talk about that in the book. Glyphosate is a glycine molecule. Glycine is the smallest amino acid. The amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And glyphosate um, is a a glycine molecule, a complete glycine molecule, except that it's got an attachment to its nitrogen atom. And that attachment is called a methylphosphonate. So a little bit of chemistry there, methylphosphonate unit attached to the nitrogen, uh, which changes its behavior a lot. It's much bulkier. It's negatively charged. You know, it has a very different behavior from glycine, but it still fits in the same socket that glycine fits in to fit so as to be incorporated into a protein by mistake. So what happens is when the protein's being assembled, um, it's looking for glycine. It's got the code looking for glycine. It finds glyphosate, sticks it in there, go, goes on. And now you've got a glyphosate molecule inside the protein. And when, when that happens to certain proteins at certain places, it has devastating effects. So that's really, really interesting biochemistry. Um, and and I can, you can rummage into the literature and find various proteins that have essential glycines at places where um, they could be uh, substituted by glyphosate. And you can see that if those glycines are replaced by something else, the protein's broken. It's completely broken. So you can find the proteins that it would affect, and then you can go and see if it does affect those proteins by looking at the research literature on glyphosate's effects. And there's various uh, papers that show that glyphosate suppresses this protein or that protein, and those proteins match with the my prediction of where the glyphosate would have an effect. So it's quite an interesting kind of puzzle to piece together to get the story. But in the end, and then you can say, well, here's autism. And then what is it that causes autism? And then does glyphosate affect those particular enzymes that are known to be associated with autism, with genetic mutations? So you can really link a lot of things up, which I've done. And it's quite fascinating to be able to explain Mm -hmm. all of these conditions through that process.
0: Yeah, and, that, and that's a fascinating way on the on the amino acid side of things. And like you said, now we're building incomplete proteins, or we're building uh, weaker proteins, or we're not building proteins in the right ratio with each other for various metabolic activities. Plus, the other issue with glyphosate is just you know what Dr. Huber's talked about a lot is the mineral chelation. Right? True, true, or, absolutely. And autism and those kind of things, where you know it has such an affinity for copper. Uh, or uh, manganese, uh, zinc, you know, right. even magnesium, a- any uh, divalent cation, it really has a, uh, uh, an affinity for. So we're tying those things up. So, you know, I think maybe a better way to frame this is rather than not believe uh, new information is I think uh, as farmers or as, as other folks that are listening to this podcast, we need to think, what if this is true? Okay, let, let's accept it as uh, innocent until proven guilty, right? And, and then what would you do different as a result? How would you farm differently? How would you eat differently? What different choices would you make? And, and then let's just say uh, by some wild instance that this is, this is all, all wrong, right? Uh, we're still fine. So it's, right, it's, it's not going to hurt us to eat organic. <laughs> <everywhere, so. Right. laughs> but, but anyway, so tell me about this. Uh, you know, I've applied uh, glyphosate. I, I have handled glyphosate barehanded. Uh, you know, I have spilled glyphosate on me. Um, no effects yet. I'll no, just <laughs> uh, But um, so, and, and even in eating, right? So here I am drinking coffee, uh, glyphosate's known to go to the, um, uh, seed deposition, the fruit, uh, of, of plants. So if the floor of this, uh, uh, coffee orchard was sprayed with glyphosate. It's high probability there's glyphosate in this coffee right now in some trace amounts. We get it into us and you said some of it's sequestered into our bones. Okay. Or into our bone marrow. How does, does it ever come out? How do you detoxify?
2: Right. I mean, it does come out. Of course, in the bone marrow, you have the stem cells and the stem cells come out with tissue repair and they carry glyphosate on their backs and they deliver the glyphosate to the wound. So that's not a good way right, right. to so the heal new, the wound. The
0: area that's needed most.
2: Needs it, needs it most. It's got the glyphosate getting delivered to it. So that's not good at all. And um, it's uh, well, getting it out. Yes, I guess it's good to be practical about how to get it out. Right. And, um, and I think um, there's been some studies on animals and, like chickens and cows. In fact, there was a nice study on cows that I really appreciated because they had these cows were sick. They tested, they had glyphosate, you know, high levels of glyphosate in their urine and they thought to treat them. I'm sure they had some prior knowledge about why this might be a good idea, but they they, they treated them with bentonite clay, activated charcoal. Um, fulvic acid, humic acid, and sauerkraut juice. So the sauerkraut juice was really quite interesting. And you may just think, oh, yeah, of course, that's what you would do. But I was surprised. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have thought of it. That's for sure.
0: I would but have thought they, of the sauerkraut juice. Um, yeah. I would have maybe had a little more mineral supplementation. On plants, we use zinc a lot to help detox. That's from very plants.
2: interesting because, you know, zinc is also zinc deficiencies are connected to COVID-19. Like people with zinc deficiency have a hard time getting over COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there have been papers. So there, I remember a paper that showed that rats exposed to glyphosate, if you if you sort of pre-buffered um, up the zinc, you gave them a lot of zinc before you give them the glyphosate, that are, the effect of glyphosate on the liver was much milder. The mm-hmm. zinc was protective against the glyphosate, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And maybe just because you need to have more zinc in order to not get catastrophic results of glyphosate binding up all your zinc. I don't know. But with uh, with the additional zinc, it protected them from the glyphosate toxicity.
0: And, and in general, we have less zinc in our food or in our diet because, uh, one, uh, we rarely in historically haven't refertilized zinc. So as we remove it in mm. the crop yield, we don't typically put it back on the field. There, mm-hmm. a field. Uh, secondly, as our yields increase. So, you know, our yields are three to four X of what they were 40 years ago, mm-hmm. but that yield typically is coming in the carbohydrate composition, you know, not, not in the, uh, uh on, on, corn, for example, it's all in the starch, not so much in the fats and the oils. So it's, it dilutes it out in our food a little bit more with the high yields. And yeah. like uh, you said, we've got the, uh, tie up from, from glyphosate and a lot of zinc comes from red meat. And and, yeah, which we're
2: told not to eat
0: (laughs) for for a long period of time. But
2: that's very interesting It's just kind of coming together of a number of different factors that could really be causing a systemic zinc deficiency. Another one, of course, that I'm very interested in is sulfur. And actually, I've read some stuff about using sulfur, supplementing sulfur for their fields and and sort of papers arguing that it might not be that useful because again, when you look at yield and the amount of money it costs you to put the sulfur on there that maybe it's okay if you don't. So in other words, that it's okay to have a sulfur deficient crop because you still get enough yield. I mean, you wonder whether the criteria that are being used to decide whether a crop is good or not are not really based on the nutritious value of the crop. And I think you're alluding to that idea.
0: Yeah, and we, we've recommended the application of sulfur for, for 25 years, and that was really before we had a massive drawdown from the soil and, um, mm-hmm. you know, the Clean Air Act, um, but you know, sulfur is everything to do with plant tissue um, disease resistance, so yes. you, know, you, you don't need to go ahead and be sulfur deficient, but there you have to spray our fungicide for disease resistance. So. There you
2: go, and I think the same is true for the human, you know, when you don't have enough sulfur, you're, you're, you are actually def- uh, susceptible to yeast infection, for example.
0: Okay, so you heard it right here. Doctor Stephanie says, "Eat your onions, <laughs> right? <laughs> your other alliums. You got to have the garlic in there, and 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 others. Absolutely, stuff.
2: <laughs> they always make the food taste better, right? I love onions and garlic. We use huge numbers of them in our cooking in my household.
0: <laughs> so, um, you know, talk talk a little more about what what do you wish? Um, uh, you know." It, what, what do you wish farmers knew about glyphosate when they when they chose to apply that to their farms? Because, you know, still today, 300 million acres are farmed conventionally and right. every one of those acres receives glyphosate, um, probably at least a pound per year, if not two or three pounds per year. Um, what do you what do you wish they knew?
2: Well, I wish they would understand that glyphosate is toxic and that their food, if they're they're producing food that's contaminated with glyphosate, that's not healthy food that they're selling. And they should feel worried about that. And of course, for their own safety as well, the exposure to glyphosate that they are not going to be able to avoid. Certainly, if they're going to use it, they better be very careful with how they use it. But but I think they, they would be much better off not to use it at all. And of course, if they can produce an organic crop, they can sell it for more money per pound so they might be able to in terms of the cost they might be able to offset the the extra cost of having to deal with the weed some other way mm-hmm. um, through the um, increased value of the crop that they produce and monetary value but as well as of course health value which is so important uh, for the welfare of our nation is to have healthy people in our population
0: mm-hmm. and at the same time what do you wish consumers knew about glyphosate
2: well the same thing that glyphosate is all over the food supply and that eating certified organic is a way to lower uh your risk significantly not necessarily eliminate glyphosate altogether because it's certainly showing up in some of the certified organic foods because it's in the rain it's in the rainwater. it's in the air it's in the rain it's sort of uh probably in the manure if they're using manure for the crops so you sort of um at this point it's hard to avoid because it's so pervasive in the environment um, is- but eating certified organic will definitely lower your exposure.
0: And it is in the manure, like you said. Plus, um, they've they've also there's correlation that when there's high levels of phosphorus available, which manure has high levels of phosphorus, it desorbs the glyphosate from from the solution, making it more available to plants.
2: Mm, so that's interesting.
0: That's one a- thing
2: that I, I I read a recent paper that was quite fascinating to me. That it showed that when you put glyphosate into waterways that the glyphosate actually gets sucked up by the biofilms. I don't know if you've heard this, it's quite amazing. This paper was, was really impressive. It was like two to four orders of magnitude, higher concentrations of glyphosate in the biofilms than in the free water. It just got sucked up by the biofilms. And that's very, very worrisome for the animals, the small animals that live in those biofilms that are the base of the of the food chain.
0: Yeah, because it's yeah. just uh, mistaken as phosphorus, right? And used as phosphorus in the- uh, Yeah,
2: in- there's some reason bathroom. why the biofilm is act- actively taking up the glyphosate. And so they're um, you know they're assuming that it's being dissipated, it's disappearing, but it's not. It's just going into the biofilm. So you can be misled about the amount of glyphosate that's in the waterway because it's all hiding in the biofilm.
0: Hmm. Kim, you're going to have a very long list of links at the end of this podcast, I can tell. So, <laughs> uh, you know, Stephanie, if you can get us the links to that paper, I can get you been, to that paper. we're certainly going to share this with our, um, with our audience. So, you know, uh, Good, trust I'll do that. people, you know, look at it and see for yourselves. So what's the alternative? You know, if we don't mm-hmm. have glyphosate, you know, th- there's a lot of places that are highly erodible, you know, glyphosate really ushered in the no-till you know, revolution, mm, not having to, yeah. around to cause us to farm a lot more. I, I think, you know, it, we built a system, a farming system around glyphosate. And I think when, when you ask a farmer, well, you know, a farmer said, well, what am I going to do without it? Right. It's not just take this away. Uh-huh. You know, you're asking him to change his whole approach. Right. Right. Um, what, what have you heard or, or You know, what are some things that you're aware of in that regard?
2: Yeah, well, I have been reading about the no-till, and that is quite interesting that you're able to pretty much uh, hold nutrients in the soil by not sort of stirring it up, right? And glyphosate is essential to that no-till process, at least that they think so. Do you have um, a way to do no-till without glyphosate?
0: Well, uh, we've made a commitment to get rid of glyphosate, uh, but we've probably gone to the next worst thing. Uh, So it's a matter of what's the least worst. You know, currently in our no-till system, we're using cover crops for that initial weed control, but yeah. we're chemically terminating those cover crops. With ah,
2: I see.
0: Next, that's the next chemistry that you'll hate, and that's uh uh paraquat. So
2: oh gosh, it's, it's not, it's not <laughs> that's great not at good. all.
0: The interesting part about that is, is we don't have the persistent soil effects, right? Yeah, uh-huh. paraquat's here and gone. Um, but it I is, it, 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 No doubt.
2: It, it leaves more quickly, but it causes more toxicity when it's there. Uh, but
0: what that's... we're trying to do is get to ways that we can limit this. So we've, we have been discovering some companion cropping um, opportunities where we, we have a cereal grain planted, and then in the spring we'll plant the soybeans into that. And the cereal grain, we let it grow to harvest, and no weed control is necessary. So we're currently doing that on about 20% of our soybeans. That's industry.
2: cool. That's really and great. I
0: think there's little things like that we can do. And then the other thing is, why do we have to farm everything? Uh huh. I, I think there's uh, D, E, and F slopes, really steep hillsides. We don't need to farm. Uh huh. I think we can graze those or permanent pasture or hay crop those in and row crop the, the less slopes that we can till. See, uh-huh. so uh, it just requires us massive change of thinking to make it happen yes but
2: i've heard a lot about it <laughs> yeah i i i remember uh someone i had talked to um who talked about doing a c- cover crop uh, in the off season and then mashing it down not killing it but mashing it down mm-hmm. and then you have a, a device that can puncture the seeds for the plants through the through the mesh mm-hmm. and then the cover crop actually stays there and the plants come up and miraculously come up through the cover crop right and um and then the cover crop is protecting from weeds because it's it's mashed down, um, but it forms like a, a barrier to the growth of the weeds. and you just sort of nurture the let the plant get give a give it a path to get through, yeah. but leave the rest of it all mashed down. Have you tried things like that?
0: We have. Uh, we've done rolling and uh, the, the trick is depending on where you're at uh, north to south, okay, uh, the further north you get the ability to let that crop get big enough to to mash it down where the mashing, uh, kills it, okay um, gets later and later for the crop for ah, cash to grow. okay. so I'm, I'm right on that borderline. I have to wait until about the first of June for that to work, but that really hurts our yields. Now an organic system like you're saying with higher value, we could probably justify that. You know in a conventional system like we currently are, we can't. Now if you go just a you know a couple hours drive south, uh, that's more of a possibility. I see. That's a, interesting. The crop would get mature enough in the middle of May to be able to mash it down and, and plant. So uh-huh. great questions. Oh my gosh, I, I think uh, um, you're uh, you're you're really trying to stump me here today. I,
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm eager to learn what you but you know because you know a lot more about farming than although, I do.
0: You <laughs> want to know more about the glyphosate, though. I said, you know, I I think um, what. What would you just to just to share with some people, um, where are some places that uh, you wouldn't expect to see glyphosate in our food that maybe you've run across in some of your studying that you've done and, and looking at this issue?
2: You mean, which foods how, might have yeah, higher how, levels of glyphosate than you would expect? Yes, that's right. a good one, because people know about GMO crops and they think, oh, non GMO, that should be safe. And that's not true at all. Mm-hmm. So just to remind you, the GMO crops are the corn, the soy, the sugar beets, the canola, which is the canola oil, um, alfalfa Those are, and cotton. Those are the main kind of GMO roundup ready crops where you can just spray the roundup and the crop survives. But there's a lot of crops that are sprayed right before harvest with glyphosate as a desiccant to kill the crop intentionally, to synchronize the yield. Sometimes you're rushing against a frost, right, to get the yield before the frost sets in. So there are good motivations for doing that. But those foods are the ones that are ending up with the highest levels of glyphosate, and they're non-GMO. So non-GMO is not a good enough label if you're trying to avoid glyphosate, and that includes... um, particularly what I was surprised about was the garbanzo beans, chickpeas,
1: Chickpeas.
2: all the legumes. Those are they were coming up with the highest levels of glyphosate of any foods. This was a study done by Canada, the Canadian government. Mm -hmm. And it was a friend of mine, Tony Mitra, who has been an activist for a long time. He kept harassing them and saying, you need to test for glyphosate in the food. And they finally complied and they tested glyphosate levels in thousands of different food samples they looked at both Canadian-grown foods and imports, you know, from the US, from Europe, from Mexico, and it was an interesting story. He wrote a book called "Poison Foods of North America um, based on the data which they gave to him, and so that book is useful for finding out which foods have the highest levels, which ones you definitely don't want to order at the restaurant if you don't, if it's not organic, that sort of thing. I used to love hummus and I used to really enjoy ordering hummus Uh, at a restaurant, but now I won't unless I know it's organic. So it's just that it's high enough in glyphosate I don't want to go near it. So uh, that's interesting, the chickpeas, but also oats. So the oat cereals and oatmeal cookies, oatmeal. um, These are things that kids eat a lot and they've got very high levels of glyphosate. And of course wheat, wheat is sprayed right before harvest. I think glyphosate is the primary reason for the epidemic we're seeing in celiac disease, which is a sensitivity to gluten. We've got so many people, you know, we've just got huge sections of the grocery stores these days of, of gluten free foods because um, so many people are sensitive to gluten. And I think that's a direct consequence of the glyphosate in the in the wheat. So right. oats and wheat and, and uh, barley and that means beer, <laughs> yeah. beers and wines both have glyphosate in them, which is very sad. So you have to eat organic, drink organic beer and wine. Organic beer can be hard to find sometimes. It's not very little of it around.
0: Yeah, and so is organic wine, and, mm-hmm. and part of, part of the reason I know on the wine process they you can't use um, sulfur dioxide to uh, stop the fermentation.
1: Mm. And
0: that's not part of the organic protocol. It's almost you wish they could have a non glyphosate wine, but still could use the. Ah, that's standard, very interesting. Standard yeah. uh, protocol on it, but you know, back to what you're saying, a desiccant. Okay, so a desiccant is a harvest aid, uh, and used more in the northern tier states or in the eastern states where we're trying to get the crop to to finish quicker like you were saying pre pre pre-frost you know in in canada be able to get it harvested before the snow flies but in the eastern half of uh, kansas for example we get a lot of rain and 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 the wheat becomes very uh sensitive to fungal diseases and it falls Mm -hmm. down uh so that's a thing but oats in particular i think is very very interesting because you know oat milk now is is yes oh this is the next greatest thing and uh you know, oats, we, we spray with, um, I don't, but I mean, they're sprayed with glyphosate to uh, get them to dry down quicker because they
2: like uh, down.
0: And uh, if even start, after it's harvested. Well, it, no, if you naturally uh, oh. let it dry, the, the uh. plant will fall down and you can't. Yeah. So oh. they, they try to uh, spray it, kill it quick so you can harvest more oats. And yeah, yeah. The trouble is is it's translocating right to the seed right at that time. Very bad. Yes. Yeah.
2: And and that's so terrible because the popularity of oats with children.
0: It is. You know? yeah. yeah. And and as far as oat milk being a good alternative, you know, the, the biggest, the best thing with there is probably to avoid it would be organic. Absolutely. Yes. So.
2: which is available, I think, increasingly available.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the things that have just really surprised you, shocked you on this, this journey that you've been on of discovery?
2: I guess the thing that shocks me the most is that people dismiss what I say, because to me, it seems so obvious that this is happening. And, and people always find another reason why that, or to deny even that it's happening, like autism isn't really happening. It's just being diagnosed more. The denial is, is amazing to me. The, um, The inability for people to see the world the way I see it, you know, because I I just think it's very clear to me that that there is a big problem here. And of course, I have all this evidence that I've been gathering for years at my disposal, but I don't share all of it with people. But it seems like I have to share really a lot of it before people become convinced. And most some people never become convinced. They just think and partly that's, I guess, because they've been told it's safe. The government says it's safe. It's been used for a long time. Um, there's a sense of it can't possibly not be safe, you know, given that backdrop, right? Mm-hmm. It's something that's very hard to believe when it's, it goes so against your previous belief system. It's very hard to shift your your perspective to believe that it is so toxic. And of course, because it happens slowly, you don't really notice it. You don't really realize you're being poisoned because you're not. You don't get that immediate effect that you do with some of these other chemicals, which makes pe- which fools people into thinking that's safe.
0: Why do you? Uh, what have been uh, some of the people that you have seen that 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 switch flip? Okay, where where the evidence has finally gotten them to a point where they 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 understand or, or what does it take people to, to change their paradigm essentially in approach to yeah. glyphosate there that you've seen?
2: I think one thing is just becoming sick or even maybe deciding to go on an organic diet and having something go away. Some some. You know, for example, urinary tract infection. I definitely think that glyphosate is a causal factor in urinary tract infections, which are very common, especially among women. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, once I switched to an organic diet, I basically never got an urinary tract, tract infection. It just went away. And, and there was a woman who, who was someone who contacted me who was the husband of a woman who had a really serious uh, problem. Uh, and I've forgotten what it was called. It had to do something with that, that kidneys and, and uh, bladder Condition that was much worse than a urinary tract infection. And that she was struggling so much to deal with it. And when she went organic, the whole thing just disappeared. She had tried all kinds of different drugs and whatnot. Nothing was working. When organic, it was gone. And then he wrote up about it in his, um, on the web, he wrote a lovely article about this, her stories. So it's, you know, people, um, and people may be working with glyphosate and then getting symptoms of some, something that is associated with glyphosate. And that, that'll definitely, when it happens to them personally, uh, that will definitely be a wake-up call. Like a farmer gets non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, right? He's all of a sudden convinced that maybe glyphosate wasn't such a good idea.
0: Yeah. The sad part about that is it it's, can't reverse it. You know, It's too
2: late. Yeah. That's why you really need to be able to do it up front. You need to recognize the risk before it happens to you. And that's what's hard for people to do. People don't um, don't react to things if they don't see it, if they don't feel it personally. Right. only after they feel it personally that now it's too late because it's gone so long that it's very hard to reverse.
0: Well, I think that the key is, is we don't want to wish anybody a health issue, right? Or, or right. Those, but we do wish that you would, uh, you know, listen, consider, you know, read Stephanie's book, read, read some other articles that are out there in the links that we'll have in this podcast, but just strongly consider for yourself what, what the potential is for this. And, you know, the other thing that I'm concerned with too, is just, let's say we did stop today. Yes, we, we still have a legacy load that we're going to right. be dealing with for you know 25 to 50 years. Uh, yes, within water and atmosphere and well, atmosphere won't take so long, but water and soil will, will be an issue. But It
2: certainly was uh, surprising to me, another uh, paper that I read recently, this was a new paper like 2020 2021 um, looking at glyphosate residue in trees that had been sprayed with glyphosate 12 years before. And they found glyphosate still as a uh, contaminant in the, in the trees, in the tissues of the trees. And so it can last a really, really long time.
0: Yeah. It will continue to recycle uh, throughout the tree really for the yes. tree's life. You'll, you, it, will slowly go down over time as it exudes out the roots and maybe reacts with some of the, the soil. Uh, right. But then you just run the risk of it being remineralized and taken back up into the tree again. Right.
2: It keeps on recycling. That's and the you thing.
0: can, I can, I can spot it just because we have an opportunity to work with trees, but you can see the bud failure and the, and the branch formation differences. Um, oh, that's interesting. Glyphosate and dicamba is the other one. That's uh, uh, yes. really, really spooky that auxin inhibitor and what that's going to do for, for long-term tree health. But uh, yeah, that's another story.
2: Uh, right. I read, Well, I read about dicamba and the, a rolling out of dicamba resistance. So you have a, comp, a double resistance in the ge- genetics. the GMO, both glyphosate and dicamba. And then you have a product that has them mixed together and you can give, you know, because they are glyphosate resistant weeds. And actually those glyphosate resistant weeds are probably an increasing problem that's making glyphosate less attractive. Right.
0: I think probably uh, that's a great point. I, I, unfortunately, I think glyphosate will go the way of um, just not effective before it goes to the way of not being Mm. Uh, Yeah,
2: that's, it'll be that it's not effective. It's a cost effect. Um, Right. Cost benefit ratio will go down because you have to use more to get the, uh, to kill the weeds. Especially
0: Um, when the price is doubled and sometimes tripled and supplies mm -hmm. are a problem because not the, not the uh, active ingredient, but surfactant packages that go with it are on a a boat from uh, China. So
2: ah, it's just a real, real problem because the price it's is going up well, and yeah. that, and that makes organic more attractive too, because oh, there you, you know, go. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I and think- one could hope that that will happen. Glyphosate <laughs> will become not cost-effective.
0: <laughs> exactly. And I think it's um, just to back up uh, uh, a few minutes ago about the, you mentioned a friend with the UTI, uh, urinary mm-hmm. tract infection. Um, you're really looking at a change of the biome going on that, that's causing that because of its yes. selectivity of probably gram-positive versus gram-negative microbes. And also for, you know, uh, in the soil, we see it be more anaerobic uh, species selective. It, aren't we really kind of changing our overall gut biome, which is changing overall microbiome within our body that lends itself to more of these, in fact, uh, UTIs and those kind of things?
2: Absolutely. That's definitely going on. Of course, that's also the inflammatory gut and leaky gut and all those issues are also being caused by glyphosate. Um, the, the, the microbes, the, um, the bacteria that are more sen- sensitive to glyphosate, turn out to be the ones that are more beneficial. So you have the bifidobacteria and the lactobacillus, which are so important. Uh, And the child's gut, you know, and then they get killed off by the glyphosate and then things get imbalanced and you get many more pathogenic species that are releasing toxic chemicals that are um, are getting into the brain actually and affecting the brain. So it's a, there's been tremendous increase in a number of papers written recently about the gut microbiome. There's a tremendous increase in awareness that the gut microbiome matters, which I think is a direct consequence of the fact that it's not working. It's not working because of the glyphosate exposure. So we're much more aware. It used to be, it just worked fine. So we didn't really think about it. We didn't study it, but now we are trying to figure out, you know, what exactly, which species are causing disease and which ones are good, which ones are bad, that sort of thing. Very, very complicated research space that they're doing these articles that your eyes glaze over because there's so much data, you know about all these different bugs. I mean, it's just like everybody's gut is unique. You know, it's, it's very, very complicated.
0: It is. And then then what happens uh, when you put a selective a biocide, you know, within within the diet, um, which glyphosate has been registered as a biocide. And and like you said, many of these beneficial organisms, uh, the LEBs and um those kind of things are are really affected. And um I think it's uh again, just the effect of unintended consequences, right? Yes. Um but so by, by not using them, those kind of things is certainly what you'd implore us to do. Um, and then let's say people who are listening that want to uh, detox, simply not having any of your diets, key one, any other, any other tips that you'd have for people as they, they look to live and, and uh, drink and eat uh, cleaner and, and, and try to, um, you know, work this out of their system.
2: Yes. Well, I certainly uh, support not just organic, certified organic food, but also whole foods as opposed to processed foods. Very important to switch to a whole foods diet, take the time to actually cook in the kitchen, you know, go back to, to grandma's style of, of eating and um, and also eating sulfur. I told you sulfur rich foods. I'm a very big fan of sulfur. I think sulfur deficiency and especially sulfate deficiency is a systemic problem in our society. And I wrote about it in my book because I think glyphosate is disrupting many of the enzymes that are involved in um, managing sulfate, making it and transporting it and, and swapping it from one molecule to another. There's a whole bunch of enzymes involved in managing sulfate. And sulfate is super important um, as a for actually for digesting, for your cells to be able to break down debris. They need sulfate, sulfur and sulfate. And it's also important for maintaining healthy uh, circulation. It's got many, many uh, important roles and people don't realize that uh, It's not something that's talked about very much uh, by the the industry or by the experts in in health, you know, in uh, in the health field. They're not as aware of the more of them, more and more of them are becoming aware recently, but it's not been an obvious talk. For example, it doesn't have a minimum daily requirement. Sulfur does not have a minimum daily requirement. But I think it's deficient in our diet. And glyphosate disrupts the enzymes that that make it safe and make it effective. So people have a lot of people have sulfur sensitivity problems, so they don't like to eat garlic because it upsets their stomach. And I think that's because glyphosate messing up critical enzymes that are involved in handling sulfur correctly.
0: Yep, that's a very good point. I, I hadn't thought about that before in regards to, to sulfur in the diet, but you're right. It's, it's not included as one of the 17 essential things, according to our, our government um, and, and those kind of things. So definitely something to keep an eye on. So moving forward in the future here, um, what have you got your eye on? What are what are things that you're exploring right now and uh, um, uh, other, other topics that are of, of interest to you in your ongoing research and study? <laughs>
2: well, a big one for me, a new one since 2019 is deuterium. Oh. You're laughing, but.
0: Oh, sure. you said 2019. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> we can go there too. That's fine. <laughs> deuterium, tell me about that.
2: Yeah, I'm very interested in deuterium. I happened to uh, get approached by someone, uh, Laszlo Boros, who's a Dr. Laszlo Boros, professor, actually. He's a Hungarian born, and he was trained at the Zent Georgy Institute in Hungary. And uh, deuterium is something that the Russia, Hungary, and Ukraine are the key countries that are where research is going on with deuterium. And um, in the West, uh, it, it, the doctors don't even probably know what deuterium is. So we're completely clueless about it, but it turns out to be super fat, fascinating physics and biology and chemistry involved with deuterium. So deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It's an, it's an atom. Hydrogen, of course, is the smallest atom, one proton, one electron. Deuterium has one proton, one electron, and one neutron. So it's twice as heavy as hydrogen. It's naturally found everywhere in nature, something like 155 parts per million in, in seawater. Hmm. And it's present in all of our food. So it's just basically everywhere. Our body has to deal with it. It has different physical properties from hydrogen because, of it's, because it's heavier. Uh, it tends to stick better in covalent bonds, but it doesn't do so well in ionic bonds. So it changes sort of the whole chemistry of how water works. When you've got deuterium in the water, it behaves, deuterium water behaves very differently from regular water. And the really curious thing is that it's extremely toxic. If you take, so they, they figured out how to make um, deuterium rich water back in the 1950s. And in the 1960s, they did some experiments where they exposed rats and mice to deuterium, high deuterium abnormally, totally abnormally high deuterium water, which apparently tastes pretty much like water, looks pretty much like water. So it's a super good poison because it it basically killed them within 10 days. Mm. It was extremely toxic. Now, of course, normally you would never see water with that much deuterium in it. But the fact is that the small amounts of deuterium that are in our water, in our food, matter tremendously to the mitochondria. And in the mitochondria, the whole metabolic system is, is orchestrated around making sure that the water in the mitochondria is low in deuterium. There's all these fancy mechanisms that allow it to do that. And and that's important because the deuterium wrecks the ATPase pumps that make ATP in the mitochondria. So you get mitochondrial dysfunction if your system is unable to maintain low deuterium in the water in the mitochondria. And it turns out that all these enzymes that are involved with that process are susceptible to glyphosate's mischief. Mm -hmm. So I'd I'd already singled out these enzymes as being likely uh, getting hit hard by glyphosate. And then I discovered that these enzymes are also involved in maintaining low deuterium in the mitochondria. That's what made me extremely interested when this person approached me and said, hey, you gotta look at deuterium. So I, just like with glyphosate, I just started reading everything I could about deuterium as soon as I heard from him about that. And I became very convinced that one of the things that glyphosate does, and you might best characterize glyphosate toxicity, as a disruption of that system that maintains low deuterium in the mitochondria. And the result of that is is mitochondrial uh, defects, which they release uh, reactive oxygen species. They don't produce enough ATP, so the cell loses energy. It's it's got reactions causing damage to the cell tissue. So it's really, really bad uh, if 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 the cell's not able to keep deuterium low in the mitochondria.
0: So it blocks, yeah, blocks its ability to reduce that, which would then cause, you know, death ultimately to that cell or zero energy production and essentially energy starvation of the cell from the mitochondria. Huh.
2: Yes. And many, many diseases are connected to mitochondrial dysfunction. You know, you can find papers about linking mitochondrial dysfunction to a huge list of our chronic diseases. So um, I think it's, it's key. And the mitochondria are so important, of course, because they provide the energy and they can cause toxic exposures by virtue of their release of superoxide and you know hydrogen peroxide, these sort of not nasty oxidizing agents that get released when they're not working properly. That's the thing that the deuterium causes them to, first of all, not be able to make enough ATP, but at the same time, to be spewing out these reactive oxygen species. Two really bad things go on, go wrong in, the, in that context.
0: Which then those oxidative species, that's, you know, Free radicals, and, exactly, and cancer is causing link. Uh, yes. agents. So, um, yeah, we're, this podcast is going to have to include a flowchart on your thinking too. Together, uh, <laughs> I'm following along, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm just I'm I'm look calm here above the desk, but my my feet are just trying to run to keep up with you underneath. So. <laughs> Uh, Is that a spatial distribution problem? In other words, a result of byproduct of manufacturing primarily? um, Or is that an environmental, uh, you know, uh, ubiquitous problem on deuterium? Yeah,
2: um, it's basically, it's around in our environment, all, all everywhere. It's not like you can avoid it. And it's actually, I think, a natural part of biology. Biology has figured out how to exploit deuterium. And what it actually does is I'm really fascinated with the whole way the biological systems handle deuterium because what they do is they trap the deuterium in gelled water and the gelled water is made by all these sulfates. So the sulfates is distributing along the blood vessels, gel the water that lines the vessel and trap deuterium in the gel. And so when you trap deuterium in the gel, what's left behind in the fluid blood is low deuterium water. You're sucking out the deuterium and trapping it in the gel. And then you've got low deuterium and what's left over. And then you have these enzymes also that are able to um, only work on if it's hydrogen. So it's quite fascinating. There's these lipids, fatty acids. Um, You can make fatty acids and and people have done that. The the pharmaceutical industry has made fatty acids that have lots of deuterium in them. And they're thinking that they might be actually beneficial because uh, there's an, an enzyme called lipoxygenase that actually reacts with the fatty acids and produces a product that's inflammatory. So their thinking is, if we can um, have people eat fats that are loaded up on deuterium, then that enzyme won't work. And that will be good because it will stop inflammation. That's the logic that they use. they completely broken because the fact is that those fats that have fats have very low deuterium. So eating a high fat diet is eating a low deuterium diet. They naturally have low deuterium because the enzymes that make the fats know how to avoid deuterium. And so fats become a healthy food. The mitochondria love fats. They really prefer to to, uh, metabolize fats for that reason because they already start with low deuterium. So, um, but this lipoxygenase is actually producing deuterium depleted water, which is so essential for the health of the mitochondria. And when you block it, you can't make that deuterium depleted water. People are gonna get sick. So what people don't realize, they say, oh, inflammation is behind all disease. But inflammation is what makes deuterium-depleted water. And so because your natural systems that could do it without inflammation are broken, you have to back. You have to use this backup system of lipoxygenase, which produces deuterium-depleted water, but at the same time, it causes an inflammatory response. So uh, it's quite, quite interesting. The, the yin and yang of all of this, you know, lots of times you have um, a health condition that causes pain, but in that pain is something that's happening. That's helping you to solve your bigger problem, which is like your mitochondrial disruption. So I think a lot of these diseases that are associated with pain, like the pain in the joint, it's actually in the joint making deuterium depleted water and helping to solve that problem for the mitochondria. It's really, really interesting.
0: What other, it is fascinating. What, what other, um, topics are on your radar right now?
2: COVID-19 <laughs> it's
0: a uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating um what what in in regards to COVID-19 what are some of the things that uh, you're concerned about
2: well I'm concerned about glyphosate because I think that glyphosate is a uh, major player in causing uh severe disease with COVID-19 and in fact in my book I wrote a whole chapter on glyphosate and the immune system glyphosate I think uh does a real number on the innate immune system, it really disturbs it so that you don't have natural immunity. You don't have adequate amounts of natural immunity, which means that you're more susceptible to infections. And so in particular, the COVID-19, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus is better able to proliferate in a person's lungs if that person has been exposed to lots of glyphosate. And one thing I'm particularly interested in there is the possibility that there's a a new problem in recent years with biofuels. And biofuels are, um, you know, these fuels that are derived from, from um, mass, from biomass, which often, for example, you would, and you might know more about this than I do, but my understanding is you grow a field, for example, of wheat, you harvest the wheat, and then you take the stubble and you throw it on a barge, you take it to a plant and turn it into biofuel. And you can convert these, you know, remains of the crops after you've harvested Um, You can convert them into, you know, uh, ethanol and uh, methane gas and um, biodiesel, you know, even bio home heating oil, all these different biofuels that can come out of this biomass. And it's a way to reduce oil consumption. So that feels like a good thing, you know, with respect to climate change. But the problem is, I think that the glyphosate's ending up in the biofuel and then it's evaporating into the air and ending up in the nanoparticles in the air. In cities where there's a lot of trucks and cars and buses driving, you know, uh, bioethanol or bio um, diesel fuel, these uh, vehicles are causing um, glyphosate to accumulate in the air. And then people are breathing it. And so when you breathe it in, you've got your lungs getting exposed to glyphosate that's disrupting their ability to fight off the virus.
0: Because the um, beneficial is it because of beneficial microbial associations or colonies that would exist within your nasal passages and such are altered? Or is it because of, you know, that mitocon- um, the the immune system cell response at that surface? Uh, yeah,
2: it's probably some of both, but I think particularly if the mitochondria are damaged, then the immune cells don't get enough energy to do their job. They can't do the job, but it's more than the mitochondria. And in my book, I talked about surfactant proteins. There's a whole class of proteins called collectins, quite fascinating. And these proteins have a collagen like stalk, and the collagen like stalk you know, looks like collagen. And collagen, so collagen is the most common protein in the body. 25% of our proteins are collagen molecules. That's the glue that holds us together. Collagen has a long, long sequence of GXY, 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 where every third amino acid is the glycine. It's the most glycine-rich uh, protein in the body. Tremendous opportunities for glyphosate to substitute for glycine. And when the glyphosate substitutes, it disrupts the uh, triple helix structure that collagen not naturally forms. And what this is gonna do for those surfactants is to prevent them from uh, getting out of the cell. The cell makes the surfactants and they're messed up because of the collagen, uh, because of the glyphosate in the collagen. And then they can't be released into the surfactants, the surfactant proteins, which would normally trap viruses, so they can't trap the viruses, the viruses get a chance to just infect the cells, and and they have a field day. (laughs) So so I think it's, uh, you know, many different, um, I think many different proteins involved in the innate immune system are disrupted by glyphosate.
0: Fascinating. Well, I, I really appreciate your time today and everything that we've uh, talked about, what you're looking into in the future is is, is pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, most of our biofuel crops, uh, ethanol production is the largest biofuel. Um, 90 plus percent of it is a, a roundup tolerant crop that is likely and an almost equivalent percent is applied with glyphosate to it. So uh, aerosolizing it, uh, I hadn't thought of that before. So, I um, you got my mind, got my mind, my wheels turning here. So (laughs) we're going to be in touch, I'm sure, for uh, for a follow up on this. And uh, and I'm so excited that you could could be here and share some of um, your you know the real future forward looking things that you're working with Stephanie. It's it's truly remarkable. And I I know at the moment you you probably get a lot of ridicule. You Mm -hmm. know, ten or twenty years from now, it'd be like, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Everybody I hope eventually. That,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really hope eventually people will, uh, you know, really yeah. try it on for size, you know, really dig into the research and see if I make sense, because I think you know, from what I've read, it, it makes a lot of sense what I'm finding.
0: So any final thoughts before we uh, part ways here today?
2: <laughs> I do want to mention sunlight <laughs> because oh, I'm a big good. fan of sunlight, um, cool. getting out in the sunlight without sunscreen, without sunglasses, pick up that vitamin D. It's very important, again, against protection against covid because they've shown people who have severe disease almost always have a vitamin d deficiency associated with that Mm
0: -hmm. that is true and uh if you live too far north it means uh you should go to the south uh take a vacation and get
2: exactly that could be your excuse to go down to florida and have a good old old medical reason reason. yes for (laughs) your health
0: (laughs) well i appreciate that um Thank you so much for your time today. I uh, really you. appreciate all the, the leadership that you're showing and, and helping people discover uh, a better way to do things. Um,
2: Thank you. Yes, it's been
1: great. Enjoy talking right. to you.
0: Yep. Take care. Take now. care.
1: Bye. Thanks for listening to this conversation today. You know, sometimes our topics are hard, but necessary to hear. Hopefully, we've encouraged you to do some critical thinking of your own about our production systems and how we can continue to work to improve not only soil health, but human health as well. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there, you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks so much for listening.